this timeline slide, and I'll, I'll keep doing this until you have it memorized. We should be a test at the end. Um, I've laid out six periods of Israel's history. The one that we're in right now is called the Divided Kingdom Period. It's in pink there, and it's from the years 930 to 722 BC. So a period of 208 years where God's promised land was broken up and divided into two distinct nations with two distinct capital cities, the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. By the way, there'll be lots of timelines and maps today, so gird your loins. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Now, three of the four prophets that we've covered so far, Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah are a little bit hazy in terms of trying to nail down the exact time frame that they were working within. But last Sunday we looked at Amos. He was very clear about the time that he lived. And Hosea is even more precise than Amos. In fact, if you look there at the very first verse in the book of Hosea, you see a list of kings that he says he served under. Verse 1-1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beiri, during the days of, here we go, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, okay? And during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. So uh, again, there's a lot going on on some of these timelines, but I'll try to walk you through it. What, four of the five kings that he just mentioned I have on this time frame, two powerful kings in particular, Jeroboam II in Israel, and Uzziah in Judah are incredibly important. You see also dates there for Jotham and Ahaz, who he mentions in the first verse. And you see the skull and crossbones at the year 722, because why? That's the fall of the northern kingdom. They are going to go into oblivion. The 10 tribes in the north are going to be destroyed. Yeah, that's my fancy, yeah, image. Pirates, yes. Pirates are going to come get them. No, that's just, that's that's my weird mind. Death in the year 722, so it's important to see that. Now, uh, as I have shared uh, over the past couple of weeks a couple of times, the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel was marked by a time of great prosperity. Nobody would have guessed if you were living under Jeroboam that this death was coming in 722. They had strong economic development during his reign, especially in terms of trade, expansion of the borders, the importing of all kinds of luxury items that the land had never had before. And the people, as Amos said last Sunday, remember he said they are at ease. They are comfortable. They are prosperous, even as they are clueless about all the spiritual decline that's happening around them. Now, one of the factors that helped Israel to prosper uh, prosper during this period, and I didn't mention it last Sunday, I was saving it for today, was because of the relative weakness of Assyria. Now, we're going to have to get used to talking about Assyria for the next couple of weeks because they are a very important piece to Israel's history. Assyria is the bully of the region during this period, of the ancient Near East. But they were in a historical down cycle at the time of Jeroboam's reign. They had been stuck in a long, drawn-out civil war and a whole series of kings that were very weak in terms of their leadership. So during this time, Jeroboam is able to flex his muscles because Assyria was struggling. But that's about to change. Things took a sharp turn for the worse at the death of Jeroboam in the year 753, 753 BC. He had a son named Zechariah who took the throne, and Zechariah was not the man that Jeroboam had been. 
And by the way, this is one of the consistently puzzling things about ancient history. I talk about every time I teach a class at Masters or wherever, I talk about this in ancient history. When you have a dominant king who is strong in his leadership, it's amazing to see how his sons end up being very weak. And you can go through leader after leader in the ancient Near East, and you find they turn out to be weaklings. Now, most scholars chalk it up to the fact that the dad, the strong king, probably had to fight for the crown, probably had to serve in the military, was a general or something like that. He fought for his power, but then they tended to raise their sons in palace luxury. And so they raised sons that were soft, sons that weren't, didn't have to fight for anything, but were handed the crown. And so when they finally do come to power at the death of dad, they often are incredibly weak. So Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, was not a hardy king. Within six months of his rule, he was overthrown and assassinated by a usurper by the name of Shalom, a man who had absolutely no claim to the royal throne of Israel. Shalom, it turns out, was also overthrown. He served for, get this, one month. One month after his palace coup, a second coup happens, and he is overthrown and executed by a man named Menachem. Now, Menachem ruled for 10 years after that. He is the only one in this time period who was fortunate enough to die of natural causes. His son, Pekaniah, came to power. He ruled just two years. He, too, was overthrown and murdered by a usurper by the name of Pekka. Pekka then ruled for eight years. He was assassinated by a king by the name of Hoshea, and Hoshea has the unfortunate legacy of being the final king in the history of Israel, the one who will be actually taken captive by Assyria. So let me give you those names again. I'll put it up here on the screen. Between 753 and 722, about a 30-year period, you had six kings in the land of Israel. It is a chaotic time filled with, with court intrigue and murder and assassination and very much instability in the land of Israel. Now, again, for us to fully understand what's happening during this chaotic time, we have to take a moment. So you history people, dig in. Those of you who struggle with this, hang with me, okay? We need to talk a little bit about Assyria because they're going to be a main player over the next couple of weeks. The most important character in this story who is barely mentioned in Scripture but who casts a huge shadow over Israel is a man by the name of, wait for it, Tiglath Pileser. Tiglath Pileser, the third. There was two before him, believe it or not. Whew. Yeah, uh, it, that's a name in, in the language of Akkad, Akkadian, so it's not something that rolls off the tongue very easily. He is the founder of what scholars call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and he is known to be one of the greatest military leaders in the history of the ancient Near East. By the way, his given name, which is much easier, was Pul. <laughs> P-U-L. In fact, you'll find that name twice in Scripture. He is referred to not as with his throne name, but as the name Pul. Okay? Pul had been both a governor in Assyria and also a general. In the year 745, in the midst of this civil war that's happening in Assyria, he and his soldiers rose up in power. They usurped the throne of Assyria, and they slaughtered the entire royal family of Assyria in 745. So I'm putting up another red number on the screen. 745 is when Tiglath Pileser comes to power and he takes this name. It's a, it's a reg, what we call a regnal name. It's a, a throne name that he takes uh, that uh, uh, had been used twice before. So he becomes a third. So he declares himself to be king. He takes this name 
And then within a year of ascending to the to throne, he decides he is going to go on a conquering rampage across the ancient Near East. Here is what Assyria was at the, at the time that, that he takes power. Assyria is, is a strong empire, but it's still pretty regional. You see the red dot there is Nineveh, the capital city. You see that in, in northern Mesopotamia, they, they had a decent amount of, of territory. The blue dot, of course, is, is what? Jerusalem, so that you can see what's happening here. By the time Tiglath Pileser dies in 727, this is what the Assyrian Empire looks like. So over 18 years, his armies conquered Babylon to the south, the Medes to the north, Armenia, and portions of the Hittite kingdom in the northwest, both Phoenicia and Syria in the west. And if you look there, what part of the ancient Near East looks to be next on the menu? Yeah, Israel. He is... He has come right up to the border of Israel. And so they look to be the next bite of food on the menu. So as I shared last Sunday, part of the Assyrian war strategy was the use of psychological terror. Whenever they struck, the Assyrians enslaved and deported huge parts of the population to other parts of their empire. When it came to sieges, they slaughtered every man to a one. And then they often did awful things with the bodies, usually impaling them on sticks all around the cities of the wall. In fact, I'm gonna, I'll give you a picture in just a second of what that might have looked like. But Tiglath Pileser had these types of images. In fact, let me, yeah, let me just go ahead and put it up there. there by the way, there he is. Good looking guy. But the picture on the right is supposed to be him with a bow, and you see some type of siege machine in the image, and you see the bodies impaled on sticks behind. So this guy actually had these images depicting his military victories engraved in reliefs on the sculptured slabs of his palace. And these have been dug up, dug up over the last 150, 200 years of archaeology. Many of them today reside in the British Museum in London. You can go see them. But imagine decorating your walls at your home or your office with pictures of bodies of, of really brutal and, and, and awful things that the Assyrian were known to do. So Tiglath Pileser and the Assyrian kings who followed him used a brilliant policy of, of deportation, and they did it for the purpose of shutting down revolts. This is one of the big problems. When you extend an empire far away from home, guess what happens? As they say, when you, when you, if you break it, you, you bought it. So if you're going to conquer something far from home, you now have to govern it and administer it, and you've got to deal with revolts. And so the Assyrian kings had a brilliant strategy to handle this. What they would do is they would conquer a territory, they would move their people into, the new, into that land, and they would deport people out and spread them out across their empire. And over time, they would mix the gene pool such that that people basically disappear from the face of the earth. It's called ethnic cleansing. And the Assyrians were masters of it. And so this ultimately is what's going to happen to the 10 tribes of Israel in the north when they get conquered. They're going to be deported, and the gene pool is going to get mixed. Now, Israel's going to fall. Let me go back to our timeline here. Israel's going to fall in 722 BC, but the process of that collapse happens over time. Here's the history of it. It's in this third guy, Menachem's reign, that Assyria first begins to assert itself. In 743, Tiglath-Pileser and his army comes west. But rather than just destroy it, because again, if you, if you conquer something, you've got to govern it. So instead of doing that, he threatens Menachem to the point where 
he's forced to make a, a, a treaty, a, a peace alliance with the king of Assyria, which includes payments of tribute. And when we talk about payments of tribute, we're talking about a nice way of saying ransom payments. In other words, here's some money, don't kill me. That's basically what the kings of Israel had to do. For the rest of Israel's life, they were stuck in this subservient relationship, paying for protection. This is like, you know how a shop owner in New York City has to pay the mafia not to come and kill him and take his stuff. That's what Israel's doing with Assyria during this period. They're paying protection money. Now, 11 years later, Pekah is now king in Israel. You see the fifth guy there. He's king in Israel. And he gets the bright idea to make an alliance with the king of Syria to his north and to attack his brothers Judah in the south. They're going to go to war against King Ahaz of Judah. So guess what King Ahaz does? He's now under threat from the king of Syria and the king of Israel. He sends a message to, of all people, Tiglath Pileser and says, come help me. Come protect me. He invites the Assyrian war machine into the region in order to protect his land. Not a good idea. And with everybody weakened by war, Tiglath Pileser and his army, they come west. They make quick work of Syria. They, they capture the Syrian king. They execute him. They come south down the Mediterranean coast. They capture Tyre and Sidon, the, what we call the Phoenician lands. They come all the way down into Galilee. They destroy cities. They take captives. They take all kinds of, of loot. And again, they go back home. Once again, Tiglath Pileser decides, I don't want to break it. I don't want to buy it. I just want to continue to bring tax money from you to me, but you keep on living there. But still, there's this subservient relationship. Now, fast forward eight years. Tiglath Pileser has now passed away, and his son comes to the, to the throne. His name is Shalmaneser, another great name. And another common thing that you see in history is this. When a great king dies, when a great king dies, everybody who's been paying ransom money to them tends to look at the new situation with the new king and say, well, maybe he's not as serious as Pops was. Maybe I can get away with not paying him as much or not paying him at all. Maybe he's not going to be as great a king. Well, King Hosea, the last guy here of Israel, gets the bright idea to stop paying Assyria. And Shalmaneser, wanting to prove that he's as good as daddy, drags his army west. He comes to Samaria and basically says, pay up or I will destroy your land. Well, Hosea comes out and meets him on the battlefield on his knees, kissing his feet with the money that he owes him. Shalmaneser's not having it. He takes Hosea captive, puts a ring in his nose and drags him off and proceeds to lay siege to the entire land of Israel. Takes about two years for him to conquer all of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722 BC, the kingdom is no more. We, we have no, nobody in half the promised land, just Assyrians. So again, this is the period of time, all of this chaos. This is when Hosea, the prophet, is prophesying in the land during this very, very difficult time. So he's been a witness to two really amazing things. First of all, the prosperity of Jeroboam I, but then also the chaos of these final six kings and the ultimate collapse of the northern kingdom. So most people think what Hosea did was he was prophesying in the north and as Assyria began to attack, he simply matriculated south into Judah and continued his ministry down there. He's what we call a deathbed prophet. And there's several of them in scripture. What that means is he is the very last voice of doom 
for the, na- for the nation of Israel. Make sense? Okay, good. We've covered one verse. Well done. We've only got 14 chapters to go. No, we're going to press on. The rest of the time that we have together today, here's what I want to do. I want to try to, to just lay out the three parts of Hosea's prophecy. And they're actually very simple. I'll put them on the screen. The indictment against Israel, the judgment that's coming against Israel, and best news of all, the hope for Israel that he is going to conclude with. Here's what makes Hosea so difficult. And I know if you read it this week, first of all, it's long. It's 14 chapters for a minor prophet. But a couple things make him difficult. Number one, he uses a lot of coded language. Maybe you notice that there's a whole bunch of terms in there. You're like, what does that mean? And so it takes a little bit of decoding to bring into some, some history and some culture to try to understand what he's talking about. But secondly, more importantly, what he does is rather than write in a linear fashion, he sort of weaves the message together, sometimes talking about the present and sometimes talking about the future. And it gets very confusing. And it makes sense that it's like that because we have to remember these 14 chapters that he wrote were most likely not written all at the same time. They were written in pieces over years, maybe even decades, because he's going to serve somewhere between 40 and 50 years as a prophet. So these 14 chapters are written over a long period of time. So he's, here he might be talking about, in fact, chapter 1 is an entire complete prophecy. Starts off in chapter 1, you have the apostasy of Israel, and it ends with Israel's restoration of the millennial kingdom, just in chapter 1. Same thing with chapter 2. You see a divorce and a remarriage of God in Israel, just in chapter 2. So again, it gets sort of confusing. So what I'm going to try to do today is sort of weave us in a linear fashion across these three things so that you'll understand Hosea a little bit more. Make sense? Okay, let's go to the second verse. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 2. And we just want to cover, there's a, there's a few sections that are really important. We want to read this. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry. Okay, some translations say a wife of whoredom. That's not a word we use often. Or a wife of promiscuity. And it goes on, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Stop there for a second. Now, when you read that, does that raise an ethical question in your mind? Why would God ask his prophet to do this? Why Why would he ask his prophet to intentionally marry a woman who he knows is going to wander away from him and be unfaithful? This is one of the things that we need to understand about how God works through his prophets, how he communicates through them. They function in a couple of ways. The first and most important role that a prophet in the Old Testament had was to be what we call a covenant prosecutor. He is called to rebuke and to correct and to pass judgment on God's people for their breaking of faith, their breaking away from the covenant. But in some cases, they were asked to do even more than that. And Hosea is an example of that to physically embody the message. Think about that for a second. To live out the message in a physical way. In this case, to incarnate the pain that Yahweh feels as he watches his people run after false gods. That's what he's asking Hosea to do. Feel this pain, live this pain out, show this pain to all the people so they'll be reminded exactly what they're doing. God wants Hosea's life to be an example so that he'll be seen and heard by the people and to remind them, to shake them from their stupor, from their their lethargy. And so Hosea is instructed to live out the tragedy of Israel's betrayal of Yahweh 
by marrying an unfaithful woman. So go, take, yourself, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Now, I think the best way to understand what is being said here, that's obviously an unorthodox situation, is to read it in what we call the proleptic fashion. What do I mean by that? At the point that Hosea takes Gomer as his wife, she's not yet acting like a harlot. Okay, we're looking down the road. The text, I believe, is looking to the future. At the time of their marriage, she's pure, but she's soon going to wander away. God knows it, and he's warned Hosea that that's going to happen. And the reason I say that is that if Gomer is going to really represent Israel properly, then she has to be a suitable bride and then become unfaithful. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt as his bride, and then they began to grumble. Then they began to chase after false gods. So I think at the beginning, Gomer's not this person, but she's going to become that way, and God knows it, and now Hosea knows it as well. Now, in verse 3, we have the birth of a child. And she, Gomer, conceived and bore him a son. Bore who a son? Hosea. Okay? So it appears that this first child is a product of their relationship. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Did you hear that? I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here's a little decoding we have to do. What, who is Jehu and why does the valley of Jezreel matter? Now, hopefully you remember who Jehu was. A couple Sundays ago, I called him what? He's the terminator. He is the terminator of, of Israel. He was the man given the task by God to cleanse the land of Baal worship, to cleanse the land of, of all the idolatry of King Ahab and his Baal-worshipping wife Jezebel. So he was instructed to wipe out every living relative of Ahab, and this guy was good at his job. In fact, he was a little too good, wasn't he? In 2 Kings 9, we read the story of Jehu furiously riding to the city of Jezreel, where he confronts and he kills both kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah. He got a two-for-one. Then he set out and he killed 70 relatives of Ahab in the valley of Jezreel. Then he orchestrated the death of Jezebel herself in the city of Jezreel. So even though Jehu was carrying out the purposes of God and ridding the land of Baal worship, he is judged by Scripture, by God, to be reckless and impetuous and bloodthirsty in the way he went about it. And according to 2 Kings 10, he, even after that, failed to eradicate the false worship sites at Bethel and Dan from the land. So in the end, he too is judged to be a wicked king. So when God says in verse 5 that he will break the bow of Israel, he's referring to the spirit of Jehu that is present in the land, a spirit of violence and a spirit of false worship. And by the way, what does Jezreel mean in Hebrew? It means to scatter or to sow. So every time, every time somebody saw this boy Jezreel and they said, why would you name them that? It's to remind Israel they're about to be scattered into exile. By the way, just to give you an idea of where Jezreel is, the Jezreel Valley, and an opportunity to put a map on the screen, those pink dots sort of line what we call the Valley of Jezreel. From the Mediterranean Sea in the west to the, that blue line is the Jordan River in the east. And those dots there, uh, starting from the east is Bet-Shean, and then comes the city of Jezreel, then comes Megiddo, and then Mount Carmel, 
near the coast of the Mediterranean. And in just less than two months, Team Israel, we're going to drive right through that valley. And we're going to stop at these spots. And we're going to get to Mount Carmel and climb to the top. We'll be able to see all of this valley of Jezreel. It really is a beautiful, beautiful place. In fact, I'll give you a picture of what it looks like now. It is today a vast, beautiful agricultural plain. This is the view from Mount Carmel. And you see Mount Tabor on the left, where Deborah and Barak fought against the Canaanites. You see Gilboa, Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul and Jonathan were killed by the Philistines, Mount Gilboa. So you've got all this incredible history that's happening right here in the land. By the way, that's where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. That is the Valley of Megiddo. That is where Armageddon will take place. So it's an amazing place. Okay, so that's the Valley of Jezreel. It's a very important place. Guys, Megiddo, right there in the center of the valley, is, has been the home of war, battle after battle, war after war. It's always a place of violence. And that's part of what God is saying through Hosea here. It's the violence of Jezreel. All right, let's keep going. Verse 6. Then Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Rachamah, which means no compassion or no mercy. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, he says, and deliver them by the Lord their God. It will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Interesting detail here. Hosea says that the southern kingdom of Judah had not yet exhausted God's patience. And so they'll be preserved for about another 135 years before they too will go into exile. Verse 8, when she had weaned Lo-Rachamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people or not my nation. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Now, tragically, we don't know if these last two children were Hosea's kids. It's possible that they were products of Gomer's adultery. But like Jezreel, they're given names specifically so that as they walk the land, people will see them, hear their names, and know that God is speaking through the prophet. First, that God's mercy for rebellious Israel had now come to an end. Man, we talked about Joel, and we said, look, the people had a choice to turn, right? But here in Hosea, that choice is made. Judgment is coming. And that's part of the first name here that we have. Israel's rebellion has led to a place where God will no longer be merciful. Second, that Yahweh was now turning away from Israel as his beloved people. Lo ami, not my people. Now, does that sound harsh? We tend to think of God and we say, wait, God doesn't forsake his people. So what's, what's going on here? Is this his character? Here's the reality. God was not divorcing himself from the covenant. He was not saying that I will no longer fulfill the promises that I made because he will always fulfill his promises. Those promises we read are irrevocable. So all God is doing in this situation is describing conditions on the ground. This people had turned away from him. They had betrayed him. They had no desire to know him, no desire to worship him. So what God is saying here is, okay, fine. That's the way you want it. Let it be. That's what's happening in this moment. Make sense? So let's do a quick survey real fast, and let's look at the indictment that God has against Israel. And the indictment you see on the screen is spiritual adultery. We can start, look at the beginning of chapter 4. And we're just going to read some scriptures here, so I'm going to bounce around quickly. But look at the beginning of chapter 4. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. 
God says, I have a case against you because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. I find that interesting, no kindness. Israeli society had become a brutal place. Sometimes I, I, I get so down when I, I look at the lack of civility in our nation, right? No kindness in the land. People are cold. People are calculating. It scares me, doesn't it? There's no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in the land, but there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. The physical creation mourns from the sin of mankind. And everyone who lives in it languishes. This type of sin drags an entire people and their land down. Going back to chapter 2 now. Look at verse 5. Listen to the depth of Israel's self-deception. They've actually come to believe they don't need God anymore. They've come to believe that they are sufficient in themselves. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 5. For she, Israel, said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I'll go after false things because that's where I get my stuff that makes me really comfortable and happy. Drop down to verse 8. She does not know that it was I, God says, I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they use for Baal. He says, look, you think you're self-sufficient. You don't even realize I've provided those things and you've taken them and you've turned them around and used them to worship of all God's ball. Shocking. Verse nine, therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I also take away my wool and my flax given to cover Israel's nakedness. Drop down to verse 13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Sad. Chapter four, again. Verse six, a very famous verse. Chapter four, verse six. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. He says, because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. You'll have no credibility, no authority to stand in my presence. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Wow. So take note, the people didn't just lack knowledge in the sense of, well, we just didn't have enough information. No, they had the information. They had every advantage in the world. They have rejected it. That's what Hosea says. They have ignored it. They have set it aside. They've said, well, who is Yahweh? Why do we need him? We're doing so well. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. They've played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills. Verse 14, the men offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes so the people without understanding are ruined. Wow. Flip over to chapter 6, verse 6. This is something that we saw in Amos as well. This is very important. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, God says, 
and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Folks, God is not interested in empty religious ritual. When will we get that through our heads? He doesn't, he doesn't want you to come and just make sacrifices. He doesn't want you to come and just sing worship songs. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. Those other things don't impress God. Did you know that? I always tell people, you get no brownie points for showing up in a building on Sunday. You get no extra credit for singing songs. God wants your heart. He doesn't want religious ritual. He says it right here. Look at chapter 9. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 3. This is an interesting statement. They will not remain in the Lord's land. They're going to be exiled, he says. But Ephraim will return to Egypt. Now, another coded term, Ephraim, the most prominent tribe of the north. This is, it's synonymous with Israel. So Hosea calls Israel Ephraim throughout. Ephraim will return to Egypt. That is, they'll go back into slavery. This time in Assyria. But the, the picture is... Look, I brought you out of slavery, and now you're going back into slavery in Assyria. He says, Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. The days of punishment have come. Last one, chapter 10, verse 5. More false worship. The inhabitants of Samaria, that's the capital city of Israel, the inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beit Aven. Now, what is that? Another code that you, you need to crack here. It's a reference to the false worship site at Bethel. We talked about this a couple Sundays ago. Only the prophet Hosea is renaming it now. Now, the, the name Bethel in Hebrew, Beit El, is what? House of God. He calls it Beit Aven, which is house of vanity. All he's done is say, you think it's the house of God? It's the house of vanity. What does he say about it? He says, the inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf. Of all things, they build a giant golden calf in Bethel and say, come worship Yahweh using this image. It makes no sense, right? Indeed, its people will mourn for it. It's going to get taken away, and this dull, stiff-necked people will actually mourn for that statue, he says. And its idolatrous priests will cry out over it. Remember we talked about they established a false priesthood in Bethel. And they'll cry out over it. Over its glory, since it's departed from it, the thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute. You think Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser wouldn't love to have a big giant golden calf? Yeah, they took it. They took it. So we could read more about the indictment, but you get the idea. You get the idea of the depth of Israel's sin. So what's the judgment? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Assyria and exile. Now, remember, a few weeks ago, I talked about the curses that come out of Deuteronomy 28. Do you remember? The covenant blessings and the covenant curses. Moses had been very clear to Israel. If you turn away, if you disobey the law, you should expect to suffer. He was so clear about it. You should expect to suffer in a number of ways, including, number one, being defeated by the, at the hands of your enemies, and number two, taken captive into exile into foreign lands. Both of those things are now on the table and ready to be served. Go back to chapter 2, verse 4. We'll do this quickly. Chapter 2, verse 4, very short statement. God says, I will have no compassion on her children. 
because they're children of harlotry. And the idea that you get here is that after generations and generations of idolatry, there's no faith in the land, not even among the children. Go to chapter 5, verse 9. Again, a very simple statement. Chapter 5, verse 9, Ephraim will become a desolation. Serious word, a desolation in the day of rebuke. Chapter 8, very first verse. Whenever God says, blow the trumpet, something big is coming. He says, put the trumpet to your lips, blow the shofar, something big is coming. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Why? Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Drop down to verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7. Very famous verse again. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. God says, this is so, so funny. Picture this for a second. You sow the wind. You plant the wind. How much sense does that make? How do you plant the wind? It's a metaphor for utter foolishness and worthlessness. You can't plant the wind. You can't sow it. And so now Israel's foolishness is going to result in the reaping of a storm, a whirlwind of consequences that will sweep them away as a nation. That whirlwind is tiglath Pileser and Shalmaneser. So, and this is a hard thing. In, in Habakkuk, when we get to him, he's going to address this. But God is going to use this wicked people of Syria as the rod of his discipline to punish his people, Israel. Go over to 11, chapter 11, verse 5. This is where Hosea gets very clear about what the judgment is. 11.5, he says, Assyria, remember Amos didn't mention them by name, he just sort of hinted at it, but he says, Assyria, he will be their king because they refused to return to me. And then last one, chapter 13, verse 4. This is what it's going to look like when Assyria is taken, when Israel's taken by Assyria. Chapter 13, verse 4, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. What does that, does that sound like Acts 4.12? Right? There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. There is no Savior besides me. Verse 5, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Did you catch that? This is, this is one of the keys to understand what Israel was like. And guys, for us as well. And being satisfied, being comfortable. What? Their heart became proud. And they forgot me. Guys, we're all prone to that, aren't we? Getting comfortable, seeking comfort. I just want to be happy. And pride builds up, and therefore they forgot me. Verse 7, so I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. Yeah, what the Assyrians do to Israel is not pretty. I, I'm not even going to go into the details, but it's not pretty. Okay, so we're not going to end there. Yay, see the last one? Okay, good. <laughs> There's more. Truly the most amazing part of Hosea is this last part, that he's going to announce this great hope for Israel. So turn over to chapter 3. It's the shortest chapter. It's five verses, so we get to read it, which is really cool. 
Now, some time has passed since Gomer has given birth to her three children, and as prophesied, she has run off and become a harlot. Now, listen to what God asked Hosea to do. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, Hosea, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Who makes raisin cakes? Raise your hand. You're in deep trouble. In <laughs> deep, deep trouble. No, that's a, that's a reference to cakes that they used to bring to these cultic sites and, and offer as sacrifices. Don't let it confuse you. <laughs> I hate raisins anyway, so that's good. <laughs> that doesn't surprise you, does it? Yeah, verse two. So I bought her for myself. I bought her. He had to buy his wife back. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Homer and a half. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you. So God says to Hosea, look, dude, I know Gomer. I see everything. I know what's going on. I know she's left you. I know she's been out there seeking after all kinds of lovers. I know she's been all over town. I see it, but I want you to go and love her anyway. Imagine getting that instruction. I mean, imagine suffering through that pain that Hosea had to watch his wife do this with kids, right? They've got three kids, and yet she's running around town, and now he's told to love her again? Imagine the pain here. Can you imagine the scandal that this must have caused? This is one of the things you don't often hear about. What about the scandal? Can you hear the whispers of the people? What is he doing? Jose, you're a respected man in this community. That woman is trash. Why would you take her back? But the scandal is exactly the point that God wants to make. God wants all of Israel to see what Hosea is doing, to shock the people in the midst of their sin and rebellion, to wake them up. Do you not see what's going on here? My prophet, what he's doing? Do you not see the parallel? Here's the reality. Those who had eyes to see in that time and ears to hear, they saw it. And all the rest continued blindly down their road and suffered judgment. Now, culturally, we're not exactly sure why Hosea had to buy Gomer back. It's possible that there was a price to be paid to somebody in order to buy her out of a life of prostitution. Like he had to, he had to pay somebody to get her back. It's possible also that her lovers sort of rejected her and put her on the slave market. But either way, he had to pony up a hefty amount of money to get her back, to redeem her from this life of sin. And no cost was too high to bring her home. Does that sound familiar? Think about that. Let me say it again. Hosea had to pay a hefty price to redeem Gomer from a life of sin, but no cost was too high to bring her home. When we think about the high cost that Jesus paid to redeem us from our lives of sin, that's when Hosea's story really begins to sink into our, our hearts and we see the lesson. Man, I got terrible news for you this morning. We are all Gomer. That's the point. When I, when I teach, when I taught my spoken comm class at Masters, I would, I would often tell students, I'd say, you know, one of the best ways to start a speech is to walk up and make a really shocking statement. 
Just wake people up. So I was going to walk up this morning and say, good morning, harlots. <laughs> and then Tanya talked me out of it. She literally, <laughs> don't, don't do it. But it's important to see this, you guys. We are Gomer. I mean, we try to find ourselves in every story, right? But we often don't, don't see it here, that we are actually Gomer. You and I were at one time prostituting ourselves before every idol that the world had to offer, thumbing our nose at God, selfish to the core, doing whatever pleased us. And yet in our rebellion, God sought us out. That is amazing. He came looking for us in our rebellion. And in spite of our ugliness, what we had done, our adultery, our harlotry, he loved us. And he paid the ultimate price to buy us out of slavery to sin and to bring us home as his bride. That's what Christ has done for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So both Hosea's marriage and the cross reveal the boundless love that God has for his children. It shows us the extent to which he will go to save knuckleheads like us. That's what we are. Now here's the parallel between God and Israel. Look at verse 4. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Verse 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Man, this is good news. God has never stopped loving Israel. That's true today. Hear me on that. He's never stopped loving Israel. But until they repent of their sin, until they return to him and trust in their Messiah, Israel, Hosea says, will continue to be without king and without prince and without a sacrifice that can pay for their sins. They have no sacrifice today to cleanse them from sin apart from Christ, their own Messiah. They have no temple. They have no sacrifices. So they'll be without king and without prince. But verse 5 says, there is a blessed afterward. See that word? A future restoration and a blessing. In the last days, Israel is going to come trembling to her Messiah. When he returns in power and they finally see him for who he is, they look on the one whom they've pierced. He is, as Hosea says here, David, their king. He is Yeshua, the son of David, the eternal king of scripture. And all Israel will finally in that day turn to him and be saved. Man, that's, that's amazing stuff. Restoration in the last days. Go back to chapter one real fast. I just, a, a couple other things I gotta do. I know I'm running short on time. That's another place. Go to verse 10, another place that Hosea talks about this regathering of Israel. Right after he says, no more compassion and you're not my people, he says in chapter one, verse 10, yet, great word, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. They are gonna multiply. Man. And in the place where it said to them, you're not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Paul quotes that in Romans 9, doesn't he? Applying to Jews and Gentiles. Verse 11, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader 
and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now you have to turn over to the first verse in chapter 2. Okay? I'm going to look for that. There it is. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Rochama. In other words, say to them, you are my people, and I will have compassion. Listen, God has this great promise. Now, is any of this going to stop Assyria from coming? No. None of this is going to stop judgment. Assyria is coming. Here's what God is saying in all this. Judgment will not be the last word. Judgment is coming, but it will not be the last word. Generations of Israel are going to be lost. There's no doubt about that. But God will not give up Israel forever. In the end, Yahweh will graciously take back his wayward bride in spite of the harlotry. That's the promise that we're given here. And listen to what marks that day. Israel and Judah will come back together in one kingdom, and they will have one leader. Who's that? King Yeshua. They'll be brought back together. They'll have one king, and it says they will go up from the land. To where? To Jezreel. Why are they going up to Jezreel? To fight the battle of Armageddon with Jesus in the lead. Wow. Now, one more section of the book. Chapter 2, verse 14. I'm not even going to read this section. It's too long. But write this down. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. I'm ending with this, I promise. Well, kind of. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. I want you to read this when you get home. Read it tonight. It's one of the most tender love songs in the entire Bible. This is God singing a love song to his wayward bride, Israel. Two things that he does in this passage. I'll just summarize it. He talks about wooing Israel, enticing her with great gentleness. Verse 14 says, behold, I will allure her, allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. Guys, in spite of our sin, this is what God does with us even today. This is so cool. He doesn't just cast us away when we stumble, when we sin. He doesn't just throw us away. He allures us back. He says, return to me. Over and over again, right? I mean, how many guys, you, you fell into sin again this week? I love the fact that Grant gave us just a few moments to confess sin together this morning. So important. And at least once a week we come here and hopefully we're confessing our sin, returning to him with all of our hearts, not just our lips, our hearts. God wants to allure us. He wants to call us back. What does he want to do? Come back home to the place where there's peace and joy and fullness of life. Don't hang out there in the world. Come home, you harlot. That's basically what he, hey, Gomer, come home over and over and over again. His mercies are new every morning, but he says, return to me. Never think you're too ugly or too wayward to come back and repent of your sin. Jesus waits with open arms for his children over and over and over again. Do you understand? Over and over again, he does it. He knows his wife is a harlot. Jesus knows that we are harlots. And he still invites us to come home over and over and over again. We deserve judgment for our spiritual adultery, every single one of us. What does God say? No, I'm going to allure him 
or her. I'm going to entice them back. I want to draw you back with my love. I want to bring you out into the wilderness, just you and I, and I want to speak tenderly to you because I love you and you're my child. Why would we, why would we not come back? Folks, why do we not come back? Why do we stay out when we have these promises? The second thing that God mentions here is that he will renew his marriage vows with Israel. Verse 18 says, I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. I'll make them lie down in safety. He'll be a protective husband. I'll take you to be my wife forever, he says. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. Three times he says that I will take you to be my wife. We'll go back to our engagement built on a fresh foundation. Things will be right between us. Just come home. Put away your harlotry and come home. That's all he's saying here. And when you do, you will know me your covenant God, with your sins washed away, together we can experience the most intimate communion possible between man and God. That's what he's saying. Guys, this is the gospel in the Old Testament. And it's beautiful. This is how God feels about you. So what do we take away from this? Guys, we have to take away both sides of this coin, both judgment and mercy. Both apply to Christians today. Judgment and mercy. Because as the song goes, we sing it over and over again. We are prone to wander. Is that not true? We are prone to wander. We stray from our divine husband. We play the harlot because the world has so many things that draw us away. And too often we act as if we can dabble with idols and not reap any consequences. We deceive ourselves into thinking that way. By the way, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, James talks about it. James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses, he says. See, there's the shocking statement. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So I'll say it again. We are Gomer. We are Gomer. Now, the question for each one of us Gomers here today is very simple. Will we repent of our sin and return to our husband? Or... Will we be like 8th century Israel and continue to play the harlot and act as if it doesn't matter and reap the whirlwind of our foolishness? That's the question before each one of us today. We all need to be committed to a regular spiritual inventory, folks. A regular spiritual inventory so that we're not enticed to wander away from the Lord. Having a regular checkup where we're being truthful about what's happening in our hearts where we're checking our lives, we're looking at the outflow of our hearts, the choices that we're making, where we're constantly reflecting on the gospel and the goodness and the grace of God, where we're opening up our lives to other brothers and sisters so that they can help us in this examination. Guys, this is essential Christian life. We all need it. Not one of us here doesn't need that in their life so that we don't wander away. And if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, and you're in a dry spell this morning, or you've been, you've been out there losing the battle with sin and you feel like a spiritual adulterer, I want you to know this. Wherever you are today, Christ has not left you. Do you hear me? He has not left you. He's alluring you. He's inviting you to come back home, to seek his face, 
and repentance and worship. And he is not going to stop coming after you. You cannot run away from God. We saw that with Jonah, right? Whether he comes to you in discipline or in blessing, he will continue to pursue his children. Why? Because he has made a promise to finish the work in you. So he will keep coming. So hear his voice this morning in the book of Hosea. Be reminded that he loves you, not because you're faithful, but because he is. That's good news. And just praise God this morning that he bought us back, that he bought us out of the slave market when we were slaves to sin. I know the cost wasn't silver and barley and wine. It was much, much more. The life and the death and the resurrection of his one and only son. What a gospel we have, right? What a divine father we have. What a divine husband we have who loves us this much. Amen, Gomers? Next week, we look at Micah. Micah.